Okay. So like uh, Dan said, my name is Ryan Kohlinger, and I have the honor of bringing God's word to you this morning. And for those of you who are new, um, like Dan said, I grew up here in this church, left for college in 2012, and uh, I have a deep love for the people here. And I'm thrilled to come back after uh, seminary and in the midst of my work with churches in Indiana to come here and, and share God's word. So today we're going to pick up where we left off last summer, which is the last time I was here, in the book of Job. But before you turn there in your Bibles, I want, to li- I want you to sit back and just listen to a story. So a man from the city was driving through the country on his way back from a business trip. And he saw something that he had never seen before. And he had to pull off onto the side of the road to see what this was. Now, how many of you here know what a calf puller is? Okay, so a calf puller is an instrument that is used when a cow is giving birth. Uh, The farmer will attach the calf puller to the end of the calf as it's being birthed, and he will use it to help pull the calf out to aid in the birthing process. So the man pulls off to the city, man pulls off to the side of the road. He sees this calf puller, this farmer using it, this whole process, and he is just fascinated. And uh, the farmer, after a couple minutes, looks over at him and smirks at him and says, I bet you ain't never seen anything like this before. And the city man says, you're right, I I have never seen anything like this. And then after a couple minutes, he says, you know, I do have one question, though. How fast do you think that calf was going when it ran into that cow? (laughs) Now, while humorous, this story illustrates an important point that is going to be central to the focus of our message this morning. Your understanding of life is going to be, uh, it's going to dictate how you interpret the events of your life around you. So your understanding of life will dictate the events of your, how you interpret the events of your life. The city man did not understand the context that the calf puller was intended for. Both the farmer and the city man saw the same thing happening, but they both drew two completely different conclusions as to what was happening based off of their understandings of the tools at work. And this, this story illustrates the main theme that we're gonna be looking at today from the second section of the book of Job, and that's this. Your theology or your understanding of God will dictate how you perceive and interpret the events of your life. Let me say that one more time. Your theology or your understanding of God will dictate how you perceive and interpret the events of your life. And today we're gonna see how the theology of Job and his friends dictate how they perceive Job's situation. Now, I want to review with you what we talked about last summer before we dive back in. So if you'll remember with me back to the first message, the story of Job opened with this heavenly courtroom where Satan is putting God's policy of blessing the righteous on trial. Satan is arguing that it is not good for God to bless the people who do good because then people will only do good for the rewards they receive and not do good because they love God and because it's the right thing to do. So God allows Satan to use Job, the most righteous man in the land, as a test case to prove why people do good. And this means that Job becomes a case study in this heavenly courtroom, or exhibit A, if you will. Job is righteous, but God allows Satan to take away everything Job has, his wealth, his children, and even his physical health, to see how Job will respond. Will he turn away from God, proving that he was only in it? the rewards 
So the story now progresses from the prologue in chapters one to two, which we talked about last summer, to the second part, which we're going to talk about today. And it's going to be these cycles of conversations that Job has between uh, him and his friends. So look with me at Job chapter two, verses 11 through 13, and this sets up what we're going to be talking about here. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, the next 29 chapters are going to be cycles of conversations that Job has with his friends. And instead of diving into all these chapter, 29 chapters one by one, I'm going to have us look at specific passages that showcase the arguments that each group is going to make and the responses that repeat back and forth over the 29 chapters. And in these chapters, Job friends will state what they think is wrong and how Job should fix it. And Job will refute their arguments, and then they will go at it again, lather, rinse, repeat. Now, let me set the stage for these conversations that they're going to be having by giving a little context that will hopefully shed light on how these 29 chapters are constructed. So if you remember from last time, I talked about the idea of a theodicy. And a theodicy is an attempt to explain something in our world in light of who God is. So the the modern-day classic theodicy has three basic premises. The first one is that God is all-powerful. The second one is that God is all-good. And then the third one is that evil exists. And so when people try to explain how these three can all coexist at once, they create a theodicy. Most often, people will deny one of the premises. So they may say, well, God is all-powerful, but he's not all-good, and that's why we have evil in the world. He, he doesn't really want to do anything about it. Or people will say, well, God is all-good, but he can't do anything about the evil, so he, he must not be all-powerful. Or they, some people even deny the existence of evil and claim that it's some sort of an illusion or something else that's going on. And so this morning, we're, we're going to have each group in the book of Job, attempting to construct a theodicy in the context of Job's life and situation. Meaning we're going to see how Job and his friends try to interpret why the things have happened to Job that are happening to him in light of who God is. And there are three elements at play in Job's situation that make up the core components of this theodicy. And these are going to be on the screen behind me. God is just, Job is righteous, and the retribution principle works. Say that one more time. God is is just, Job is righteous, and the retribution principle works. And each person is going to take a stance defending one or two of these basic premises and then question one or two of the other premises. So let's start by taking a look at what Job's friends have to say. So first, I want to tell you a little bit of significance about Job's three friends that is easily lost to us as Western 21st century readers. Eliphaz Bildad and Zophar, in addition to being really weird names to us, um, they're not Hebrew names. Eliphaz was a Temanite, meaning he was probably an Edomite, someone who descended from Esau, so not an Israelite. Zophar was from Nema, a city that scholars are unsure where it was, but they lean toward it being in South Arabia. Again, not Israel. 
And Bildad was the shortest man in the Bible because he was Bildad the shoe height. Shoe height. I'm a new dad, so you got to give me a couple dad jokes here. Um, so Bildad the shoe height, scholars also think he came from somewhere in southern Arabia. Again, not an Israelite. So we have very little information as to the exact purpose for the writing of this book and equally little information concerning when it was written. We, there's nothing in our Bibles that says, oh, this was written in this year. So scholars have to try and figure out where to place this. And traditionally, people have placed the events that take place in Job sometime during the events of Genesis. That's when they think it probably happened. While the story may or may not have taken place during that particular time period, many scholars believe that the story wasn't actually written down in the form we have it today as the book of Job until later. So it was an oral story that they passed on and passed on and passed on until somebody wrote it down. And many scholars think that this book was written, during, written down during the period where the nation of Israel was either about to enter the land of Canaan, uh, the promised land, or they were already dwelling there. They had just moved in. Now, why is this significant? Well, because the friends' names match the names that you would find of the peoples that are the nations that surround Israel when they moved into the land of Canaan. This means that these three friends are going to represent the belief system that was held in ancient times by the people that Israel would have come into contact with on an everyday regular basis. And this belief system is known as the retribution principle, which is one of our parts of the triangle. And it states this, if you do good, God will bless you. If you do evil, God will punish you. Now, let me stop here and say this is not necessarily bad theology, right? We live our, day, our lives every day by this idea. We are taught from a young age that if we obey our authorities and do the right thing, life will tend to go well with us and we probably won't get thrown in jail. This is still good theology because it's true to a certain degree. But the important thing to remember about the retribution principle is that it is a principle and not a law. Gravity is a law. It will always work. This is a principle. It usually works. It's like seatbelts. Wearing a seatbelt is going to keep you safer in a car crash than if you weren't. However, there are very rare cases where somebody would have survived a car crash if they hadn't been wearing a seatbelt. In fact, I went to a summer camp one year in high school, and there was a girl in the camp there as well, and her brother had tragically died in a car accident, and he would have survived if he had not worn a seatbelt. And because of this, she never wore her seatbelt. And while I sympathize with her story and why she made that choice, it doesn't quite work because you're more likely to be saved in an accident if you are wearing your seatbelt. Or it's like with food, um, eating healthy and exercising. You can be the healthiest person on the planet and still die from some disease, but that doesn't change the principle that if you eat well and exercise, you're more likely to protect yourself from physical harm and live longer. And guess what? God uses the retribution principle in our lives, right? If we sin, there tends to be consequences and punishments in this life. And if we obey God, he tends to bless us in this life. Now, some of you may be asking, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Why does the retribution principle not always work? Why is it not a law? Why is it that I'm not always blessed when I do right, right? I'm doing the right thing and I'm not seeing blessing. Well, because there's sin in the world. Sin prevents the righteous from seeing blessing and sin celebrates the wicked. When the retribution principle works, we are tempted to see God as having failed. This brings us to our first point this morning. We must remember that when the retribution principle does not work, it is not a failure of God, but a product of sin. 
We can sometimes be quick to blame God when things go wrong, but we should remember that it's the effects of sin that are often at play in the suffering that we experience in this world. And I think the story of Joseph illustrates this really well. Joseph honored God, and yet he still suffered. His brothers sold him into slavery because they were jealous of him. He refused to sleep with his master's wife when she tried to seduce him, uh, an action refusing that clearly honors God, and he was still thrown in jail for decades. Yet, what Joseph, look at what Joseph says to his brothers at the very end of the story in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Even though Joseph obeyed God, the sin of others, his brothers and his master's wife, got in the way of the blessing that Joseph should have received. And in spite of all of this, God was still able to direct and guide Joseph's difficult circumstances to bring about his plan for saving the sons of Israel from famine. So what about your own life? Have you been tempted to blame God when things go wrong? Maybe you're in the middle of a situation right now where you've obeyed God, but you aren't experiencing the blessings that you were expecting. Or you're witnessing others who are disobeying God and seem to be prospering. Do you see this as a failure of God or the product of sin? Do you have the long view in mind? Are you like Joseph who could faithfully suffer for decades before he ever saw relief or even the grander purpose behind what was happening to him? Can you trust God and his sovereignty that he has everything under control? So now that we've fully unpacked the retribution principle, let's look at Job's friends. They believe that the retribution principle is a law of nature, not a principle. So read with me what Bildad says in Job chapter 8. We're going to be flipping back and forth so I can showcase to you the the best uh, illustrations of their arguments. So we're going to skip ahead to Job chapter 8 and see what Bildad has to say. Starting in verse 5. He, meaning God, who removes mountains and they know it not. Oh, I'm sorry. That's chapter 9. Chapter 8. Verse five, if you, Job, will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your faithful, rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Job's friends have concluded that Job must have committed some sin, either intentionally or unintentionally, which is why Job is suffering, right? Do bad things and get punished. The solution that these friends present to Job is ask forgiveness from God for whatever this thing is, the sin that Job has committed. They believe that if Job repents, God is then compelled to give him good things. The retribution principle is their explanation for Job's circumstances. Job's righteousness is what they're questioning here. Can Job truly be righteous if this is happening to him? You see, their understanding of God and how God works have dictated how they perceive Job's circumstances. They urge Job to return to God by repenting of some sin so that Job can be blessed. They are not interested in righteousness for righteousness sake. They are interested in righteousness for personal gain, like we talked about last summer. And this is exactly what Satan, the accuser, is trying to prove to God in this cosmic courtroom. These friends are doing a great job of helping Satan's case. These friends spend 29 chapters arguing with Job about whether or not he is righteous. But what does Job say about all this? 
Job refuses to comply with their pleas to repent to God of some, un, some sin, known or unknown. He believes he has nothing to repent of, and if he were to repent of something, he would be showing that he is only interested in righteousness for the rewards that it brings. So look with me at Job chapter 27, where Job says this himself. Starting in verse 2. As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter. As long as my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it for me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Job defends his righteousness. However, he begins to question God's justice. Turn with me to Job chapter 9. So skip backwards again. Job is responding here to Bildad, starting in verse 21. I am blameless, I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one, therefore, I say. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its just, just judges. If it is not he, who then is it? Job has a strong understanding of God's sovereignty, the fact that God is in control. In fact, his understanding of God's sovereignty is so strong that it's overshadowed every other attribute of God, like God's justice or his goodness. And Job does not see how the effects of sin, things external to himself, play into the situation, right? Evil is at work in the world. Or the fact that all wrongs will ultimately be made right. If not now in this life, then they will be made right in eternity. He's lost that perspective. And here again, we have another example of how someone's perception of God has determined how he perceives the events around him. And this brings us to our second point. We cannot allow our flawed understandings overshadow God's justice or goodness. When life becomes difficult, we can be tempted to question if God truly is just or if God truly is good. And this is a theme that you see all throughout the Psalms. Turn with me to Psalm 10, and we're going to look at that. Now, if you're like me, you grew up, Psalms, huge book, right? They all kind of say the same thing. And uh, didn't really give it much thought until you really start to dig into what exactly the psalmist is saying in each of these psalms. And it gives new light to the psalms that I want to share with you this morning. So I'm going to read all of Psalm 10 here. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the, only, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As, as for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eye is stealthily watched for the helpless. He lurks in ambush 
like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed. They sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Turning point. Arise, O Lord. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the blameless commits himself, and you have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Notice what the psalmist does here. He cries out to God with graphic language. He is saying to God's face, this is unjust. You are not good. You are not holding to your promises. Me, a righteous person, is suffering and the wicked are prospering. But notice what the psalmist does. He doesn't end there. He reminds himself that God is just and God is good. And the psalmist chooses to ask that God bring about this justice and goodness. He ends with a prayer of faith. The psalmist does not let his perspective on the situation overshadow God's justice and goodness. So let me ask you, have you allowed yourself to question God's goodness or his justice? Is your understanding of God that he is a cosmic vending machine such that when you don't get the rewards that you think you should get from being a good Christian, you get angry, declaring God is not good, he is not just, and he is not worth following? Or do you have the perspective of the psalmist? Are you able to recognize the injustice around you, cry out to God, pray for his justice and goodness to come speedily, and trust God in the midst of difficulty? Now let me get to the third part of the book. So we've covered the first part, the prologue, that was last summer. Second part, the cycle of conversations with the three friends. Now we're into the third part of the book of Job. Job has another set of conversations, but with a different friend named Elihu in chapters 33 through 37. So who's this Elihu guy? Unlike the other friends, his name is a Hebrew name, and it means God has indeed acted. He is a newcomer on the scene, a newer, younger person. And just like Elihu, the Israelites were a newer nation being introduced into the land of Canaan. And Elihu represents the, thinkings of the, the thinking of the Israelites, how the Israelites would attempt to answer this question of Job's suffering and God's justice. So what stance does Elihu take in this theodicy? Well, Elihu is going to defend God's justice. However, what we see in chapters 33 through 37 is that Elihu attempts some creativity with his arguments. Elihu, his argument tries to expand the retribution principle. Elihu says that God's retribution principle includes one other element that's missing. God can bring difficulties into our lives, not necessarily because we did something wrong in the past, but because he is trying to prevent us from doing something wrong in the future. Let me say that one more time. God brings difficulties into our lives, not necessarily because we did something bad in the past, but because he is trying to prevent us from doing something wrong in the future. This is what we might consider as uh, discipline. Let's look at chapter 33, verses 8 through 18, and I can show you where this is said. Job chapter 33. Starting in verse 8. 
Surely you have spoken in my ears and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, saying, this is um, Elihu saying, Job is saying this. You say, I am pure and without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you for God is greater than man. Why do you contend with, against him saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from peril, from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Elihu does not point to a past sin that Job has committed. Job has adamantly defended his self-righteousness. No one's going to argue that. Instead, Elihu points out to the severity to which Job has claimed self-righteousness. Elihu argues that God knows that Job's self-righteousness, left unchecked, will lead him down a wrong path. So God is bringing difficulty into Job's life to help break him of this future problem. Look again at verses 16 through 18. This is where we see it. Then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. This idea of turn man aside from his deed with warnings is the idea of a path that someone is headed down that will eventually lead to sin. Give me a moment here. Either who makes it plain in the section that Job's attitude about his righteousness and Job's claims about God's seeming injustice are going to get Job in trouble. If not dealt with, it will lead to sin. So God is using suffering to make Job aware of this problem so that, as verse 17 says, he can conceal pride from a man. Concealing pride from a man is, is the idea of God addressing the pride in our hearts, forgiving it, giving us humility. And this is what Elihu believes God is up to in Job's life. God is allowing suffering so that the area in Job's life that needs more work will be exposed and dealt with. This is the biblical concept of progressive sanctification. The concept that we are continually sanctified, made more like Christ by the continual removal of sin from our lives. And God does this very same thing with us. And that brings us to our third point this morning. God can allow suffering because he sees where our hearts will lead us. He wants to expose that danger to us, and he wants us to grow in Christ-likeness. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing when we face difficulties and suffering we can be quick to blame evil for our problems and sometimes that is what is what's going on in the situation but maybe we need to take stock of the bent of our hearts that god may be trying to change he is trying to make us perfect and complete lacking in nothing so let me ask you where may god be growing you you see, too often when we experience suffering, we either blame others or we see it only as a product of sin and the enemy. All too often, we are like the little boy who hits his little sister because she kept looking at him funny, right? It was her fault. There was nothing wrong with me. She just kept looking at me funny. But do you stop and honestly evaluate whether or not God may be trying to grow you? We're so quick and to try to find explanations that place the blame somewhere else. And instead, we need to make our first response to difficulties in our lives to ask ourselves where God may be trying to grow us. And I had to practice this myself. If you remember last summer, for those of you that were here, 
um, I talked about when I lost my job. And it was tempting for me to place the blame for me losing my job on my former employer. But I actively made my first response to the situation to see how God may be growing me. And guess what? He was trying to grow me through the situation. It was not fun, but I might've missed out on the work that God wanted to do in my life if I didn't take that first step of self-examination. So what trial are you facing, are you in the midst of? What sufferings are you facing? How are you responding to that difficulty? Are you looking to see how God can grow you through it? Or are you looking to see how God may be at work in awesome ways through this difficulty? Or have you resigned yourself to your suffering such that despair, bitterness, and selfishness have consumed you? Daniel Darling, an evangelical pastor and leader, tweeted a few weeks ago, there is no category in the New Testament for the posture of the times are difficult, the opposition strong, so you can forget the fruits of the Spirit. Times of difficulty are not the times to give up, but the times to grow. So I ask you this morning, how might God be trying to use that situation you are currently in to grow you into the likeness of his son? The theme running throughout our passage today has been our theology or our understanding of God will dictate how we perceive and interpret the events of our lives. Job and his friends all had a flawed understanding of who God is and how God works, his first three friends. Their understanding of God dictated how they perceived the events in Job's life. A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So friend, what comes into your mind when you think about God? Are you like Job's three friends, seeing God as a vending machine that is bound by the laws he has set so that he has to give you what you want when you feel like you've checked all the right boxes? Are you like Job and see God as a vindictive, malevolent being who doesn't care for the oppressed? Are you someone whose understanding of God's sovereignty has overshadowed God's justice and goodness? Do you fail to recognize that God is just even when you don't see it? Do you have faith that God will right all wrongs, if not in this life, then in eternity? Or is he a loving father that cares enough about his children that he lovingly corrects them? All too often, we fail to properly interpret the events around us. Even Jesus' disciples, after spending three years with Jesus in the flesh, did not fully have the right perception to interpret Jesus' crucifixion. We just celebrated the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. God sent his son to save us from our sins. And Jesus had to accomplish this by dying on the cross. He, but everyone didn't fully understand God or his plan. When Jesus was hanging from that tree, dying, it looked like the biggest defeat in all of history. How in the world could God be loving and just when his innocent son was beaten, hanging naked, and bleeding on a cross? How could this be God's plan? But it turned into the greatest victory when Jesus rose from the dead three days later. This was the greatest act of love ever performed. And now if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are forgiven of our sins and can have a relationship with God and live with him forever. Are you ready to give up your life to God? Maybe you've never given your life to God and that's something you need to do today. After the service, I and the pastors and elders will be available for you to talk to you and we'd love to help you understand how you can follow Jesus. Or if a friend brought you here today 
I'm certain that they would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. Or maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you need to give your current situation over to God so that he can make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friend, do not wait to act. Time is now. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as broken people. People who need a new vision for who you are and what you are doing in our circumstances. People who need to learn to trust your justice when it seems to not work. People who need to remember that you are a loving father who sometimes allows difficulty to make us perfect and complete. I pray that, you would die, that we would die to ourselves and our own comforts and desires so that we can grow to become more and more like your precious son, Jesus. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.